Father God, we are here for you, and we thank you for inviting us into your presence, for welcoming us into your presence. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. While we were walking away, you came to us. And then you gave everything for us. And so we worship you, we glorify you, we praise you. Lord, we are drawn to you. And I pray that we would live lives that would make you smile, that would give you glory, that would spread your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. You don't know me, but you know my parents. <laughs> and some familiar faces. I'm Andrew Garland. Ken and Karen are my parents. I'm, uh, I'm not going to say I'm their favorite child. But I am the only one where Ken and I can swap jobs. And so that's where he is this morning, preaching at my church. And uh, now I get to preach here. I don't have to pretend to listen to him. He doesn't have to pretend to listen to me. And it all works out well. Um, I haunted these halls from uh, 1975 till the early 90s. And um, I see some of you that even worked with the youth group. And just to help you feel older, I'm 50. <laughs> so. And you've changed the place, which is beautiful. I miss the stained glass, but that's me. I don't want to start any fights. This summer at Shore Life Church, where I'm at, I'm at uh, Shore Life in Huntington Beach, um, where it's uh, about 10 degrees warmer today. And I heard over here, I could preach longer so you can enjoy the air conditioning longer. So um, <laughs> my parents don't have air conditioning. And uh, so this is a luxury. Let's enjoy it. We, we covered the fruit of the Spirit, singular fruit of the Spirit this summer at Shore Life Church. And so I get to take my favorite one, I think the one that's more uh, apropos these days, and um, bring it to you, and that's the one of peace. The fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in Genesis and Philippians, but we'll be all over the place, and I say a lot of words very fast. You don't need them all. Just pick the ones you like. <laughs> fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. And Paul was, Paul's a list maker. I'm a list maker. I love lists. And he was giving a list of this is what the fruit of the Spirit through us brings. And he was combating against the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh, because they're at odds at each other. He said right before that list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, the acts of sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how many of you woke up this morning and saying, discourse, right? I really want some envy today. No, and, and those who don't, have faith in Christ, they didn't wake up saying the same thing. And they can show acts of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of those things, but there's a limit in our flesh that we reach until I can't do it anymore. But with the Holy Spirit, the limit is not there. And that's the beauty of living in Christ, that today as much love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that you exhibit 
you can do more tomorrow through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not a, okay, now you better do better tomorrow. But it's, oh, wow, as wonderful as Christ is through me today, there's more tomorrow. And we can always be growing. In fact, we should be growing in these areas. If we're not, something's broken. Something's wrong. Either we don't have Christ in us, or, or we're shutting him down. And we can't do that. So this morning I want to look at peace because peace is something we're all pursuing and peace is what is under attack in our lives constantly. I had to get on the freeway today. Some people go slower than I, most people go slower than I want to go. And then there are people that want to go faster than me and so we're at odds with each other. I have two teenage kids. They're peace stealers at times. My son is 16 and started driving six months ago, and last night him and my daughter went to a friend's house, and it's like, I'm not at peace with this. We, uh, we struggle in this day and age. I mean, we've got, a, we've got an, an election coming up, and when that one's done, we've got another one, and we're at odds with each other, and we have to go get gas in our cars, and we see the price, and we're not at peace with that. We go to the grocery store and we see how much food is costing. We're not at peace with that. And so there's things that are constantly trying to take our peace away. How many of you vacationed this summer? Vacationing is a time to experience peace, right? Love vacations. But I don't love getting ready for a vacation. I'm a classic overpacker because I don't want to forget anything. Because if I forget something, then I'm not at peace. And so I pack way too much and load the car up with way too much stuff and, and then haul it all into wherever we're staying and maybe experience some peace at that point. There was a story of a, um, an abduction. See, those things don't bring us peace. Associated Press recorded a story that uh, an employee found a $20 bill on the floor in a store in Massachusetts. And he opened up the $20 bill and there was a note written inside of it it said, help, kidnapped, call Highway Patrol. And on the back was phone numbers, two Oklahoma phone numbers. It said, my Ford van is cream and blue Oklahoma plates. Well, the police were notified, and after they determined the names of the elderly couple registered to the phone numbers, Floyd and Rita Rupp, they put out an all-points bulletin. The media published photos and descriptions of the missing couple. The daughters of the couple sat anxiously by their phones, waiting for news as the interstate police searched 24 hours for this couple. Then a phone call was received at the office of Mr. Rupp. He called to check in. The office manager heard the familiar voice and said, you have no idea what's going on, do you? He says, I'm sitting here enjoying the view of the ocean. He didn't know that the whole world was looking for him and his wife. He didn't know because they weren't missing. His wife was going to have to drive home for the vacation alone, and she was worried. She was anxious. She was not at peace with this. And so she wrote the note. She pre-wrote the note just in case something bad happened and she could drop it and get some help. Well, in the restroom, she pulled out something from her purse and she dropped it. Didn't know. The things we do, the lengths we go to to bring peace in our lives, 
you know, sometimes they cause other anxieties. Peace is something we're all pursuing. Like in our own homes, we want peace in our homes, in our neighborhood, right? I know my neighbors. I know what makes them happy. I know how to tick them off if I want to. But I want peace in my neighborhood. I want peace in my community. And so I want to drive the speed limit and not make other neighbors mad. I want to keep the noise level down at night so that I'm not making other neighbors mad. We want peace in our cities. We want police officers so that we have peace in our cities and that we can trust what's going on. We have a government that is supposed to be pursuing peace. We have a world government, the United Nations. The United Nations was established after World War II with the aim of preventing future wars because the League of Nations didn't work. So, on April 25th, 1945, 50 governments met in San Francisco for a conference and started drafting a UN charter which was adopted on June 25th, 1945 and took effect on October 24th, 1945 when the UN began operations. Pursuant to the charter, the organization's objectives included maintaining international peace and security. 75 years. Do you know how many days of peace we have had in 75 years? Zero. Zero. Why? Because we're human. We challenge, we're challenged to have inner peace ourselves, let alone peace with others. And we sin, and so we cause anxiety within ourselves because of the sin in our own lives. And then we try and get along with other people, but they have their sins, and we're bringing in our sins in this conflict without Christ. And then Paul says in Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, I want that peace, Christ. I want that peace. Jesus promised it to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. Oh my gosh, he's going to go to the cross and die, and he's telling them, I'm leaving you with peace. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. But Jesus, do you know what kind of world you left us in? How are we supposed to experience this peace? No more striving, no more unknowns, no more difficulties, no more anxious moments, no more troubling relationships, no more wondering if there's enough, and no more worrying that no more is coming. I, I want no more fears. I want this peace, Jesus. Well, I want to tell you a story from Scripture in the Old Testament, Genesis, Joseph. You know the story. And then after looking at that story, I want to look at just three practical ways that we can bring this peace. There's obviously more. But, you know, time's limited. So let's just uh, get three things that we can take away with us today. Now, Joseph, and we know the history. Abraham, God called Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob's other name was Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob loved a woman named Rachel, but was tricked into marrying her sister Leah, he married Leah, and then he married Rachel anyway. Because Leah was unloved and God wanted to bless her, she had four sons. She was proud. Rachel was unable to have kids, and so she wanted to keep up, and she wanted her worth, and so she gives her maid, Bilhah, to Jacob, and Bilhah has two sons. Well, Leah wanted to counter that and keep up the competition, so she takes her maid, Zilpah, and she gives Zilpah to Jacob, and she has two sons with Zilpah, and then Leah was able to have two more sons after that, and then finally, ten sons down, 
God allowed Rachel to have a son, Joseph. She had another son, Benjamin, and she died giving birth to Benjamin. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Joseph was Jacob's favorite. Why? Well, because he was born to Rachel, who he truly loved, and so he's the firstborn of Rachel, and that made Joseph his favorite, and he didn't hide the fact. Gave him a coat of many colors and a musical to go with it, and so we all know about Joseph, right? He was the helicopter parent for Joseph, Genesis 37, verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because... He had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. No peace in the house. And it didn't help that dad sent Joseph out at 17 years old, said, hey, go check on your brothers because they're out shepherding the sheep and I want to hear a report what's going on. And so he goes and checks on his brothers and he finds out they're loafing off on the job. They're not doing what um, dad had asked them to do. And he gives this report to dad. And so now they're all in trouble. Of course, he does this wearing this coat of many colors. And he also likes to tell about the dreams that he has. Hey, dream, hey, brothers, this is a dream I had, and the dream had you guys all bowing down to me. Isn't that an awesome dream? Aren't you with me on that? Mom and dad, you're part of it too. You're bowing down to me as well. Well, his brothers eventually had had enough, and they turned on him. Dad sends Joseph out again to check on his brothers, and again, wearing the coat. And they go out, and the brothers see him coming a long way away because, you know, the coat is just it's a big neon sign. And they start talking, hey, here comes that troublemaker Joseph. When he comes here, let's kill him. And a couple of the brothers are like, mm, yeah, let's probably not kill him. And so they were going to, and they did, they put him in the bottom of a cistern, a water hole, and they put him in the bottom, and it was dry, but he couldn't get out. And they were just going to leave him there. And one brother's like, I'll come back and save him. But then some Midianites come. And they're like, hey, let's sell him. Let's make some money off of this. And they sell him to the Midianites. So the Midianites have this slave, which is Joseph. And the brothers pocket the money, put some animal blood on the coat. No CSI, no forensics. And they take the coat back to dad. And they said, a wild animal got him. Sorry, dad. And Joseph ends up in slavery. We know that he is sold into slavery down in Egypt to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar's the general of Pharaoh's army. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 3. When his master saw the Lord was with him, with Joseph, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in, the eyes, in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Wherever Joseph went, he rose to the top. So here he is, a slave, and he rises to the top in Potiphar's house, and he is put in charge of everything, even though he was very young. Joseph was smart, and he was handsome, and this got him into trouble because Potiphar's wife was like, man, this Hebrew guy's hot. Tried to seduce him. Joseph kept running away and kept running away and kept running away. Well, a woman scorned will be very dangerous. So one time when he runs, she holds on to his outer garment, and he flees without it, and then she's like, well, I'm not going to get him, so I'm angry. So she goes to Potiphar and said, this Hebrew slave that you brought in, he tried to seduce me. He tried to attack me. You need to get rid of him. And so Joseph ends up in prison. And again, Joseph rises up 
Genesis 39, verse 20, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Sounds nice, but he's still in prison. He doesn't have his freedom. He's not with his people. And there he interprets dreams. Pharaoh had sent a cupbearer and a baker to prison because he was mad at them. And they both had dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams for them. And he says to the cupbearer, good news. <laughs> You're going to be reinstated. You'll be back at Pharaoh's side doing your job. And he said to the baker, bad news. <laughs> You're going to be executed. And two years later, both of these things had come true, but the cupbearer had forgotten about Joseph until Pharaoh had a dream. And Pharaoh had a dream that disturbed him, and none of his wise men could interpret it, and they didn't know what was going on. And then all of a sudden, the cupbearer's like, hey, I remember a dude down in prison. Maybe he's still there. We can bring him up and see if he can interpret the dream. And Joseph comes and says, I can't, but God can. So here you go, seven years Good. Everything's going to be great for seven years. There's going to be so much food coming in. It's going to be awesome. Seven years of good, then seven years of bad. How bad? So bad that you'll forget about the seven good years. They'll eat them up. And Joseph had a plan. You need to hoard this food. You need to store this food so that you have it during those seven bad years. And Pharaoh put 30-year-old Joseph in charge, Genesis 41, verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Well, he's out of prison, and he's no longer a slave, but he's still not with his people. But everything's going well for Joseph, and then the famine, which is bad, goes all the way into Canaan, where Joseph's family lives. They're without food. So Jacob says to 10 of his sons, he holds on to Benjamin because he's the last one born of Rachel who he truly loved. And he sends the other 10, he says, go get some food. We hear some food in Egypt, go get some food. So they brought their money, they go to get some food. And Joseph recognizes them. And he messes with them. He questions them about their family. He calls them spies. You're only here to figure things out so that you guys can come back and attack. And then he keeps Simeon back. He said, look, I'm going to put Simeon in prison, but you guys can take your food back to your old man. And if you bring Benjamin back, because I find out that you have this other brother, if you bring Benjamin back, then, then I'll, I'll, maybe I'll believe you. So he sends the other nine back, and actually he puts their money back in their food bags. Right? So they stop for a break to eat something. They look in their bags. They're like, oh my gosh, all the money that we were supposed to give to Pharaoh is still in our bags, and they feel bad about this. They didn't know what happened. They go home, and they tell their dad everything, and now he's lost Simeon. And then they run out of food again. And he wants them to go back again. And they said, we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin with us. He won't give us any food. He won't even meet with us unless we bring Benjamin. And dad's like, you're not going to bring Benjamin because I've already lost Joseph, and so I can't lose them both. And Yet they're getting hungry and hungry, and finally, Joseph says, okay, you can go back. You can bring Benjamin. And they go back, and Joseph messes with them again. 
He gives them Simeon back, and he feeds them, and he gives Benjamin like five times as much food as everybody else. And then he sends them on their way, and not only does he put their money back in their food sacks, but he takes one of his cups, his diviner's cup, and he puts it in Benjamin's bag as if he stole it. And they head back home, and then uh, Joseph sends his guards to chase them down, and he stops them. And they're like, hey, you guys stole something from Joseph. No, we didn't. In fact, we tried to pay him double. And he said, well, let's open your bags and look. And they said, whoever, if you find this cup in one of our bags, that person, man, yeah, he's yours. And they find it in Benjamin's cup, and they're beside themselves because they know that their father would, is just going to die if Benjamin does not come home. And they all come back. And Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers. I'm your brother. I'm your brother Joseph. Now why did he torture them? The Bible doesn't exactly say. Maybe just to see if he could trust him. You've got to understand that it's been 15, 17 years since he's seen him. And the last time he saw him, they all wanted to kill him. And they sold him into slavery. So can he trust him? And now here they were, what? Bowing down to him. Just like the dream. Now, what would you do? I mean, you've lost your youth. You've lost 17 years of your life being a slave and put into prison unjustly. And now, sure, you've climbed the ladder in Pharaoh's court, but you're not home. You're a Hebrew away from your family. I don't think Joseph was seeking revenge. He had the power of Pharaoh, and he could have. I think he was testing his brothers to see what had become of them over these 17, 20 years. And they were completely honest with him. Genesis 45, 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. A complete lack of peace. Because they knew who they were. <laughs> We're these ugly brothers that sold Joseph into slavery, and now we're at his mercy, and I'm not good with that. I'm a little worried about that. In fact, I'm flat out terrified, because the brother that I sold into slavery and lied about is alive and has power over me. But Joseph, Joseph was at peace. Genesis 45, verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here because I, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to Preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He was not vengeful. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't egocentric. It seems to me that he is at peace with what he went through because God is bigger than the whole thing. God is sovereign. And the brothers were filled with fear because they acted out of self, out of uh, 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 preserving themselves and, and 
getting rid of a nuisance in their life, and now it was coming back to haunt them, so they were not at peace. But Joseph gives them peace. Hey, let me take this burden off of you. Don't carry this guilt or this shame. This was God's doing. Peace with God means to trust his process regardless of what it takes us through. Like Joseph, life is completely out of our control. That's a hard thing to fathom, right? Because i got to get back in my car and head back to my home and get back on the freeway, and I have no control over the other hundreds of people that I'm going to pass, and they have no control over me. God's in control. And he was able to recognize the results that God enabled this to happen. So we're going to go to Philippians chapter 4 now and see what Paul talks about. Where does this peace come from? And the first thing we look at is that there's a call to relational peace. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul writing, he says, I plead with Iodia, and I plead with Syntaki to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There's a problem. Two women are at odds with each other because they wanted a competition. Who has the worst name? Iodia or Syntaki? <laughs> Actually, we don't know what the conflict is. And if you're pregnant and you have a daughter, here's two suggestions, that's all. Whatever the conflict, it was taking away peace within the church. Two influential leaders within the church at that. They weren't people on the side or just filling up a seat. They were people who were contending for the gospel along with Paul. And whatever the agreement, or disagreement is, they were not at peace with each other. What's the enemy of peace in this situation? Pride, most likely. Pride says, I'm right and you're wrong. In fact, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. In fact, I'm right and God agrees with me. Him and I had a chat and I set him straight. And so he's on my side. And pride is the enemy of peace. Iodia and Syntaki contended at Paul's side. They were mature, active believers. They weren't bringing a false gospel into the church as so many other churches were dealing with that Paul had to talk to. These were leaders in the church. Mature, and mature believers can become tainted, and faithful followers of Christ can become selfish and controlling and entitled and contentious. It's a great tool of Satan, right, to divide and conquer. It happens in our homes. Child wants to do something, goes to mom, and mom says no, goes to dad. Let's get him out, uh, right? Let's tear down the family so I can get what I want. It, it works in the workplace. Some of you have seen that. It works on sports teams. The higher paying salary player is going to take down the other, take down the coach, take down the team. It works in so many situations. Satan works it in the church as well. The church can be taken down through avoidable fighting. When we stop doing kingdom work to fight, it's not what God wants and it's very much what Satan wants. When we're too busy serving our own agenda, then there's no love and there's no joy and there's no peace. Only worldly people wanting their own way. 
And Paul's solution, he confronts the situation. I always thought, man, all these people from Bible times, they got their name in their Bible. This is the wrong way to do it. He takes time to address this mundane issue and he begs these two women to get things right. And Paul wants them to agree in the Lord. It wasn't, hey, you guys got to get together and just find the middle ground. It's find out where God is at in the situation and both of you get on board with where God is at. Don't compromise your stance. In fact, set your stance aside completely and use God as your authority so that you could be at peace with each other because you're both following God's lead. Paul confronts the issue, but he also calls for help. Calls probably a person in the church named Yoke Fellow, Suzugos. Might have been a proper name. Hey, can you come and help these women to get on the same page here? And then he calls on the collective church and a man named Clement. He says, hey, can we all come together to help these women be on the same page here? Because they're leaders in the church. We need peace. And Joseph had peace with God because he sought peace with his brothers in the same way. He tested them for trustworthiness, not to earn their favor. He provided for their needs above and beyond. It was like a peace offering that he was giving them food, which he didn't have to do. And he identified as their brother, not their enemy. I'm not the guy that you're at odds with. I'm your brother. Don't be afraid. He humbled himself and he overlooked the offense so that they could be on the same page as well and save a remnant. Israel was only a remnant at this time. In fact, when they went down to Egypt, it was just 70 people, a family of 70. Now, we'll go from relational peace to inner peace because you can't have relational peace if, if I'm not at peace with myself if I'm not at peace within me I'm going to lash out and so Paul talks about having inner peace our goal is to be at peace with others but that's not always in our control right there's some people that are not going to be at peace with you even if you want to be and try to be and go out of your way to be at peace with them in fact Jesus promised that we'd have trouble in this world He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So peace with others comes easier when we're at peace within ourselves, but we can also experience peace within ourselves, even if others are not at peace with us, if we're at peace with God. So what does he say? Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a recipe. You want peace with God? You want this peace that God offers that transcends all understanding? Okay, here we go. Three sources of peace here. The first source is to rejoice in the Lord. So important that he says it again. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. It's important to rejoice in all things, to have joy. In fact, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. It's a hard one to define because we think happy. We think I'm having a good day so I can be joyful. But the joy that God provides, the deep down confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and his own glory. And thus all is well no matter what the circumstances. 
God is looking out for our good, not necessarily our good within this world, but our good with him, and for his glory, not my glory, but for God's glory. And we need to rest in that, rejoice in that, find joy that God rather than this world fills us with peace. Nothing in this world can provide the peace that God can provide. Because everything in this world can be taken away. I can't have enough money to be at peace because it could all be taken away. I can't have enough structure of home defense because it could all be taken away. I can't have enough children and and enough love in my home because it could all be taken away. Relationships can go south, but only in God. Now, doesn't mean that's going to (laughs) happen. But God will not be taken away. Joseph was a man of peace by rejoicing in the Lord. Do you get that? Genesis 45, verse 7. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. He's rejoicing in the Lord. I don't know when... Joseph came to this conclusion. He had these dreams when he was young that his brothers would be bowing down to him. And every day he wakes up, he's like, I'm still alive. So these dreams could come true. But he recognized at that point, this is why I went through all that God had me go through. I don't need to be bitter. I don't need to be resentful. I don't need to seek revenge. This was God's plan, and I'm going to rejoice in that. The second source of inner peace Verse 5, we see gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Another fruit of the Spirit. The Lord is near. Gentleness, when I preached on gentleness, we, we talked about the story in Acts where Saul, before he became Paul, was off to Damascus to uh, persecute the Christians. And a big light comes on him and he's blinded and he hears the voice of Jesus, why are you persecuting me? And when he retells the story later, it's why are you kicking against the goads? Right? A goad is a very sharp stick used to guide oxen. And if they kicked against it, they couldn't break it, they just hurt themselves more. And what God was saying is, or what Christ was saying was, gentleness is when we stop fighting Christ and start pushing. Gentleness isn't being weak. It's not being walked over necessarily. In fact, I think it's more powerful because gentleness is taking on the power of Jesus through us, the power to love, the power to be joyful, the power to be at peace that this world can't offer and and they don't know what to do with it. Gentleness is being reasonable and generous and big-hearted and merciful and cutting people some slack. Gentleness is the opposite of competition. It takes humility and discipline. I don't always have to be right or prove that I'm right. I can let things go. Isn't it interesting that peace comes through humility and discipline? Being gentle means I have peace with God who made me. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to pursue accolades. I don't have to put others down in order to elevate myself. When I step out of the world's competition, I find Peace. Joseph found peace. Genesis 45, 5, and now do not be distressed. Here he is talking to his brothers. Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. That's a gentle response. 
Joseph didn't say, okay, let's make things right. You ruined 17 years of my life. I, you owe me 17 minimum. Or go ahead and pay me for 17 years of lost wages and give me 17 years of love for my father. He doesn't ask to balance the scales. He takes the blame and the pressure off of his brothers. That's a gentle response. It's one thing to forgive, but he cleared it completely. This is gentleness, source, and peace with God. Joseph was at peace with God, and he could pass that peace on to his brothers. Calls us to rejoice. He calls us to have gentleness. And third thing, the third source of peace is reassurance. End of verse 5. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The Lord is near. Is that a threat or is that a comfort? Well, it really depends on which side of salvation you stand on. The Lord is near. Is that in presence or like physically or in time? Well, I believe that it's both. I think it means both. The Lord is near. I believe that the next historical biblical thing to happen is the return of Christ in the air to meet those who believe and who have died in Christ. The Lord is near in time because it could happen right now. I don't think it did. I may be here still, but most of you wouldn't be. The Lord is near, though, and we have to believe that and leave every day sharing his kingdom because the Lord is not just near as in the next point in history, but the Lord is near wherever those who follow Jesus Christ are present. We are in the kingdom of God. This is one thing that we at Shore Life have kind of fleshed out according to Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 8, the teachings of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, also the teachings of Paul, passing on what was given to him. It's called the kingdom gospel. Look it up. It's incredible. The kingdom gospel says the kingdom of God is near. Well, kingdom, you need subjects, people who obey. You need a realm, and you need a king. The kingdom of God is near, and we need to repent of all other kingdoms and believe God. Believe what? That Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again, conquering death. And we are called, therefore, to follow him. This is what we need to tell those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. We don't need to tell them morality. We don't need to tell them to go to church. We don't need to tell them to give this amount of money or, or do this or that. We need to tell them the kingdom gospel. We need to invite them into the kingdom. The kingdom of God is near. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. And the Greek for anything means anything. But in everything, and the Greek for everything means everything. We can go to Christ in prayer and petition and bring our requests to God. We can bring everything to God. We can bring everything to God. In fact, God says, bring everything to me. Well, he already knows. Exactly. He already knows. So why withhold? And so then I go to him with everything and say, God, you already know this. I'm not at peace with this. And so I'm calling on you to help me with this. What is difficult about this is that we have a hard time of letting go of control. It's a control issue. 
We want it, and we struggle giving it up to another. It's also an issue of greed. Our definition of need is different from God's definition of need. And so we're not at peace because we want. And we often equate peace with stuff, and we want more stuff so that we can have peace and security in this world, and it's never going to happen. And God knows the true peace is through trusting in him for eternal life, and he keeps offering us this over and over and over. And so Paul tells us how to find assurance and peace. He said, pray. Talk to to God. Listen to God. Petition God. Thank God and acknowledge God. Request God because he is the source of all good things. He is the giver of good gifts. Joseph had this assurance. Genesis 45, 8. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Hey, brothers, brothers that have hated me my whole life, brothers that have sold me off into slavery, brothers that wanted me dead, brothers that were so glad when I was gone, you were never in control. It was never about you. It was God who sent me here. And and Joseph was at peace with this. Showing peace in this world, and we need to show peace. Already we're at odds with the world. Why? Because we go to a church and we call ourselves Christians, and so the world already looks at us and says, you're the enemy. And we need to bring them peace. Peace grows as we become more fully dependent on God. I don't need to get into social media arguments with people. I don't need to win any arguments with anybody. I can't prove God. Because we can only come to God through faith. I'm not smart enough, big enough to prove God. So why get into the argument and prove the world that we're not at peace? We need to be at peace. Being dependent on God allows the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. When we pray about issues, we start to pay attention, right? Is God working in my life? I I, I don't know. We'll pray and start paying attention. I know in my life when I start praying, all of a sudden scripture becomes more alive to me and I see, oh, this is how God is working. And when I start praying, I see and hear from other people. I'm like, oh, God is speaking through other people. I know God better through you and I hear God through you. When I pay attention, I see the Holy Spirit working. Scripture just pops out and words from other people pops out. And God is bringing his peace to me. This is what's promised. Psalm 55, 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. And 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And the promise is not that God will fix everything. That's the way we want it, right? God, would you just fix all of my problems the way I want them fixed in the time that I want them fixed? And here's the priority that I want them fixed. Go ahead and take care of that. That's your homework for the week, God. Thank you. Appreciate that. The promise is that he will sustain you. See, we can have peace even in the midst of struggle. We can't say, well, God, I shouldn't be at peace because of all of this going on right now. No, he didn't promise to take that all away. He said, I will sustain you and I will care for you. 
The fruit of the Spirit, the result of having the Holy Spirit work in and through us is peace. But not just our peace, but an opportunity to share that peace with others. And we could share that peace only if we have that peace. And we could be that peace for others. And I know in our world, this is what our world needs. They need us to be at peace so that they can come and say, why? Why are you at peace with so-and-so in office? Why are you at peace with prices being so high? Why are you at peace with the conflict going on in the world? Why are you at peace when they're teaching this in our schools? Why are you at peace with all of these other things going on? We can create these huge lists, and I could say, because I know. I know who sustains me. I know who cares for me. I know who hasn't walked away from any of this. And I'm going to put my trust in him. Father, we thank you for this promise. Lord, I pray that we would seek your peace through the truth that you sustain us and that you care for us. And Lord, if we have this peace, why would we hold it to just ourselves, but help us to share it with so many others so that they would be into this kingdom as well, your kingdom, experiencing your peace. Holy Spirit, have your way with us so that we would have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What a life that we get to live because of you. We pray in your name. Amen.